Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Greer Jackson and Kat Arney. This week we're investigating the Millennium Prize Problems, a set of mathematical poses that, if solved, will net the lucky winner a million dollars. Fancy your chances? Stay tuned to find out more. Plus, the headlines from the world of science and technology, including why this... Is so attention grabbing how fat fish are providing insight into the fight against flab and what's the future of money. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First in the news, we take a look at heart disease. It's the biggest killer in the world. In 2012 alone, it claimed the lives of 17.5 million people around the globe. But new research shows how we might be able to save many of those lives with an ingredient found in toothpaste. Around 75% of all heart disease involves hardening and clogging of the arteries by fatty lumps known as plaques. As bits of these plaques fall off, they can block crucial blood vessels in the heart, leading to heart attacks. But using a radioactive form of sodium fluoride, that's the decay-fighting ingredient found in toothpaste, Cambridge's James Rudd has developed a technique to screen arteries for these dangerous hardened hotspots, and he joins us now in the studio. Hi, James. Hi, nice to be here. So tell me a little bit about what's going on when our arteries are hardening. What are these plaques? How do they form? So we know from uh, studies over the last 20 or 30 years that hardening of the arteries happens, unfortunately, as you get older. And we also know that cholesterol is important. And increasingly, we think that little bits of calcium also build up in the wall of the arteries. And existing techniques to try and predict people who are going to have heart attacks and strokes uh, often involve putting needles in arteries and in arms and feeding wires around inside the heart. So uh, we developed a technique working with colleagues in Edinburgh University to, as you say, target the uh, areas of calcium within the arteries actually just lying on a standard PET CT scanner without having to have uh, nasty needles put inside the body. So this is the kind of scanner we use this for detecting things like cancer, for looking inside the body. So how does your scan work to look for the signs of heart disease for these plaques? So what it involves is a very small injection of radioactive sodium fluoride, as you say, a major ingredient in toothpaste. But this isn't toothpaste. It's You're not, not injecting toothpaste. toothpaste no, people. no, it's about 10 mils of a colourless liquid. The, the compound, the chemical itself is very safe. As you say, it's found in toothpaste. There's a small dose of radiation which is attached to it so we can spot it on the scanner. It's about the same as a CAT scan of the head. It's injected into the patient and it actually binds very tightly to areas of the arteries where this calcium process is continuing. And we think that those patients with the most uptake of the sodium fluoride on the scan are at great risk of heart attacks and strokes in the future. So what's special about sodium fluoride that makes it go to these calcium-rich plaques? The chemistry, actually, is very similar to that in toothpaste. So the reason we use fluoride in toothpaste is that it binds very tightly to calcium and stops decay happening. And we think the same thing is happening in the coronary arteries and the arteries in the neck. So the sodium fluoride is binding very, very tightly and it's being washed off the rest of the arteries where there isn't any problem. So we're left just with those areas that uh, we think are at high risk of rupturing and causing heart attacks and strokes. If you can spot these, how do you know that these are definitely going to be people that are at risk? And also then what could you do about it? Because it's all very well to put someone on a scanner and go, oh dear, sorry, um, <laughs> Nothing don't we book can a holiday. Do. Exactly. Uh, as always, there's more work to be done. We have validated with pathology specimens and we've found that there's a relationship between them. 
And we're also hoping that we can use some new drugs that are being developed over the next couple of years called PCSK9 inhibitors, which are very, very expensive drugs. We think that a scan like this might help doctors to select patients who really will respond to the treatment and also avoid giving the treatment to people who are not likely to benefit. At the moment, do you know if someone who would be picked up with this kind of scan and say, oh, those do look dodgy, are they definitely going to have a heart no, attack? Or no. what, what needs to be done further to prove the kind of link between picking someone up on this scan and, and their future risk? Our initial studies have been in about 100 patients. We need to, and in fact, we're actually undertaking British Heart Foundation and Wellcome Trust funded studies in patients in the thousands and following them up for multiple years just to see whether those with the highest concentration of fluoride in the arteries at baseline go on to have heart attacks or strokes or not. And speaking of someone who's lost several members of my family to heart disease, I'm really looking forward to seeing the results of that. So thank you very much. That's James Rudd from the University of Cambridge. His thank work you. was published this week in Nature Communications. Just this week, Cambridge University Eco Racing Team unveiled their solar-powered car, Evolution. This is ahead of the World Solar Challenge in Australia, a gutsy 3,000-kilometre road race across the desert. Admittedly, a soaking wet athletics track couldn't be further away from the blazing temperatures of the Australian outback. But last Monday, I gathered with Graham Douglas and the team to feast my eyes on Evolution to see if it would work, come rain or shine, and with the hope of giving it a test drive my The race is the World Solar Challenge. So every two years, teams from all over the world go to Australia and do a race 3,000 kilometers from the north in Darwin to the south in uh, Adelaide. Uh, There's about 40 teams that start at the beginning, usually between a quarter and a third finish at the end. And it takes about four days entirely on solar power. Entirely on solar power. So surely that gives you a number of obstacles to overcome from the get-go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our solar array gives you um, less power than you get in a hairdryer. And uh, we use it to propel our car with the driver in it at uh, highway speeds. So there's uh, a lot of challenges on the engineering side. Now, your car was entered in 2013 for the last race, but it didn't quite make it um, even to the start line. What happened? Yeah, we had uh, a major disappointment last year, unfortunately. Um, Just leading up to the race, we had uh, some stability problems and uh, we ended up having a little crash. Unfortunately, we had to withdraw from the race. It's very disappointing. And what's been done this year to overcome those stability issues? So we've lowered uh, the weight of the car close to the ground, made it a bit wider and uh, changed the dynamics of the car, so how the car is steered to keep it uh, upright. So you're feeling much more confident this year then? Yeah, definitely. I think we've learned a lot from the last car and I have great expectations for this car. Okay, the moment has come, everyone. So here's our driver, Amy. As Amy and the solar-powered car, Evolution, squeaked off down the racetrack, I found myself scrabbling to describe it. Its shape is rather futuristic, and I could only liken it to a white helicopter, without the propeller or the landing pads, that got stuck in some sort of time warp, and the back end got super stretched. Simon Schofield, technical manager of the car, thought it looked more like a teardrop slash toothpaste tube. Toothpaste aside, though, I was keen to understand why Simon and the team were feeling so confident, especially since it had clouded over and begun to rain. 
One of the things that um, Cambridge University is very good at is being very innovative in the way that we design our cars. Most of the other teams have a very different design that looks more like what's called a tabletop design, uh, which means it's a large flat set of panels that face the sky and then there's a pod that the driver sits in in the middle of the car. Um, so our decision to go for something that's much more aerodynamic but has a smaller solar array is something that no other team has tried up to this point and is still quite an untested concept. So we'll be very interested to see how it turns out in Australia. The solar panels, to me, aren't very big. I'm thinking about the solar panels you get next to a swimming pool. There's loads of them, and even then, the swimming pool's not that warm. You've got maybe two metres by half a metre worth of of solar panel there. How are they so efficient? So the solar cells are gallium arsenide cells. Gallium arsenide is a very good semiconductor to use for solar cells because it's a direct bandgap semiconductor. That means that rather than needing phonons as well as photons in order to absorb light, you only need the photons, and that means that more of the photons that hit the solar cells will actually be converted into electrons, turns into energy, which allows you to power the battery. And I noticed you've got a covering, which is perfect, because on a day like today, it's raining. I imagine you won't get as much rain in the outback. Um, Does that not block some of the photons getting through? So the canopy is about 95% transmissive, which does mean that we lose about 5%, but... The benefit of having it there is that it actually keeps the aerodynamics of the car extremely good. It must be true because Evolution can cruise at 110 kilometres per hour on just solar power. And guess what? The electrical output is something similar to what you power your hairdryer with. How do they do this? Well, for starters, it's super light and their drivers are also super small, as I found out at 5 foot 11 much to my disappointment. Amy Livingston, test driver of Evolution. It is very small. I'm five foot three and it's about the right size for me. We're standing in front of the car and I can just see a mass of wires and a removable steering wheel, I notice, which you have to take on and off to get in and out of the car. What's it like to drive? It's quite different to driving a normal car. Accelerator and braking on the steering wheel and then an emergency foot brake on the floor. So it hasn't got gears then? It's not like driving your regular manual car? No, definitely not. The power is direct to the motor, so you just pull trigger, basically, and it goes. And how are you feeling about the race in October? Feeling confident that we'll finish and do better than previously, but (laughs) I don't want to jinx it. We wouldn't want to be jinxing you either. All the best with the race. We'll be catching up with the Cambridge University Eco Racing Team in October when the challenge begins. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? The latest Space Boffins podcast is from the Kingston University Rocket Lab with rocket scientist Adam Baker and a noisy test firing. There's also the new European Space Agency head on his vision for a village on the moon. We philosopher Tony Milligan on the ethics of space travel and former Apollo Soyuz program manager Glyn Lunny. All on the latest Space Boffins podcast in partnership with Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist. I'm Kat Arney and also with me, Greer Jackson. Coming up on the show, we're going to be looking at the Millennium Maths problems that could win you $1 million. If you think you know the answer, you can, of course, tweet us your solution at Naked Scientists. 
But first, over 60% of the UK population are classed as overweight or obese, which carries an increased risk of many health conditions, from diabetes to cancer. But it's not just humans that can get a little bit on the plump side. By studying the genes of some chubby fish from Mexico, Harvard's Ariel Aspiras found our fat fishy friends were actually very healthy and suffered none of the ill effects that overweight humans can. So what makes these fish so special? How do they get so fat, yet stay so healthy? And what can we learn from them when it comes to fighting the flab? Amy Goodfellow swam across the pond to find out more. I was really curious as to why some people can eat a lot of food and not gain weight, and why other people can eat very little food and gain a lot of weight. And so these these inherent differences in metabolism are not really well understood. We were interested in looking for population differences in metabolism between this species, the Mexican cavefish. There's a subset of the population that lives in the caves, and then there's a surface population, and they're both the same species. So when we started this experiment, we thought this would be a great system. These fish are the same species, but the cavefish have evolved slightly differently. The cave dweller is a bit of a fatty compared to the surface counterpart. This makes them great to study because you can find out which genes cause which traits. We found a few metabolic differences One of them was their starvation resistance, their ability to just lose less weight when they're fasting. Another is just their general adiposity, how fat they are in general. And then the third type was this uh, hyperphagia phenotype, or overeating. They kind of tend to binge eat relative to the surface fish. The cavefish are fatter and have slower metabolisms, so don't lose weight as quickly as the surface fish. They also have this remarkable ability to binge eat. Sounds pretty similar to me. But given they're the same species, why are they so different? Well, it's because of their environment. Throughout the year, they're kind of starving for the most part. And then for one time of the year when there's flooding and there's food getting washed in, there's a lot of food available. And so they kind of just have to gorge on food. And so they've evolved to take advantage of that by binge eating and not stopping when they're full. Whereas the surface fish, if they do that, they get a lot fatter and then they become more of a target with predators. Whereas these cavefish, they don't have any predators. I have a great image in my mind of these really fat fish swimming around in these caves. But are these fish actually unhealthy because of this large amount of fat, or do they cope well with this? In our lab, these fish are pretty healthy. They, um, they live for 10 years, so do the surface fish. We've looked at some blood parameters to test whether or not they have liver damage or other complications associated with you know, being really fat, and they appear to be fine. What's key here is that these fish have one vital alteration in their genome, a gene called MC4R. And guess what? This mutation is also found in humans. There's a lot of humans that have mutations in this gene and are obese. So it's associated with obesity. And uh, when you knock out this gene, so knockout means take away or you don't have a copy of this gene, uh, you get really, really fat. And it happens in not just in humans, but in mice and other animals as well. And so this is a really good candidate gene to explain some of the um, differences in this overeating phenotype we see. Does your research have any applications for humans and obesity? With this particular gene, no. This is more of an initial pass at trying to identify genes that are involved. This is kind of a good proof of principle given that we identified this gene that's different between these two populations and this gene is also different in a lot of obese humans. It is promising, though, because it does tell us that we keep looking at these metabolic differences between these fish. We could potentially identify other genes that are novel that could be contributing to both their differences in 
fat content, but also to their difference in their ability to tolerate extreme differences in their adiposity. Ariel Asperas from Harvard University discussing his work published this week in the journal PNAS. This month, technology giant Apple have launched an all-new digital wallet called Apple Pay, where you can now pay for your groceries using your iPhone. But Apple isn't the only tech firm changing how we manage our money. From TransferWise to Bitcoin, we're moving to a cashless environment and an increasingly globalised world of banking. What does this mean for us end users, though? Peter Cowley, tech investor, joins us in the studio. Hello, Peter. Hi, Greer. Thanks for inviting me back in. No worries. Start off, how does Apple Pay work and why is it better than what we already have? Yeah, so Apple Pay is, I mean, it's not the only system on the market. Google have also had something for about three years. Many of the listeners will have credit cards and debit cards, some of which, the more modern ones, have got these four arcs on them, which is a distance spending. So you can just wave the card past the reader and pay. Apple have just built it into the phone in the same way that Google have done. But Apple have added to that the fact that you also need simultaneously to have your finger, thumb or whatever on the reader, on the more modern phones, so that acting as another level of security. And that's why it's better than current methods in that you have to type in your chip and pin or actually I could give you my card or you might pinch my card and then swipe and Absolutely, do that. Absolutely, yeah. So store. it's much more secure. Not just that, there's also a tech element behind it as well to do with the way that the, the Apple phone talks to the reader. How does it talk to the reader? It talks to the reader by combining the card, the phone and your fingerprint together and give us a one-off code that goes to the reader. That Even if that's intercepted, that still will not be reusable. Whereas a normal card, if you swipe it waving the card over it's all it's doing is passing across the the card number so it's very much more secure okay i see and you you mentioned android had already launched or google had already launched their similar uh technique but why hasn't it launched i have it's not something i've really heard of before yeah that's because it's not going across the uk that's the big difference so it's probably bigger in the states so the reason you haven't heard about it is purely because it hasn't got here yet possibly also because i'm an avid apple user as well (laughs) we talked a little bit about the security and payment angle here and you've got your fingerprint id but surely there's lots of other ways that we could be authorizing payments Yes, there are all kinds of other different ways. They were talking about facial recognition, talking about um, voice recognition even. The French system, for instance, use a, they send you a text. So, yeah, there are other biometric processes that could be used. I mean, also retina scanning might be possible with a mobile phone. I'm not sure. This is all sounding very futuristic. I have heard of something called smile to pay, though. Yes, this sounds very yes. intriguing. Does that mean I just smile and I just instantaneously I, pay I suspect... for my sandwich at Pret? I don't know. And if you don't smile, you don't get your sandwich? Precisely. Is that what's happening? <laughs> yes. Is that where we're going with this conversation? No, I suspect that's facial recognition and you just happens to be the smile, maybe they're recognising that. But of course the problem there is if you led your phone, does Kat then, um, her smile, will that allow her to pay for the sandwich or not? Can I trust you, Kat? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> be going crazy with the sandwiches. What's the future here? Is this, can I expect a world where I can just carry on my phone? I don't need any cash. Is that the future of money? Possibly, but I would suspect it will be your grandchildren rather than your children. We will get to the point where there's no cash. There's a whole stack of upsides and downsides to move away from cash. One of the problems with cash, of course, it can be stolen. So, so that crime would be removed if we didn't have any cash. But instead, there'll be a whole stack of cybercrime in there. Uh, it also costs a huge amount of money both to print it, to move it, to store it, etc. 
if there was no cash, then, of course, we've all got to, A, we've got to have a mobile device and something like 5% of all Americans don't even have a bank account. We need to be able to trust the systems. We've got to have something that is not going to fail. You know, what happens if the battery goes flat? There's a problem on the tube at the moment. If you go in with your mobile phone and the battery goes flat, you can't get off the tube, apparently. Oh, dear, without paying a hefty fine, I <laughs> exactly, imagine. Exactly, as if you were there on the but tube But you wouldn't have the cash long. to pay, so... You wouldn't, exactly. So you're locked <laughs> <Problem> up. <solved. laughs> exactly. <laughs> OK, so... So that's in terms of cashless. But what about a more globalised currency? Is there somewhere that... Yeah, there's something called... And then there's Bitcoin. Bitcoin, exactly. Bitcoin is a very complex, very, very techie application of something called blockchain technology. It is being used. It's being used incorrectly as well. It's not just being used. But there are, for instance, about six or seven outlets, including coffee shops here in Cambridge, where you can pay with Bitcoin. Um, The Greeks were starting to use Bitcoin because currency sort of disappeared for a couple of weeks. So, yeah, Bitcoin will be used more and more but whether it will ever become a global currency i have no clue oh well indeed well we'll look forward to that day or perhaps my grandchildren will peter Kelly, thank you very much for joining us Thanks, today. now hold on to your nerves <coughs> did that get your attention i thought it might screams are one of the most fundamental of human noises something we're all programmed to do right from the second we're born no matter what culture we're part of Yet until now, no one has ever thought to investigate what it is that makes a scream quite so alarming. Could it be the sheer volume? (laughs) Could it be the high pitch? Both seem sensible answers, but now we have reason to believe that it might be something else altogether. James Farr spoke to David Popple to find the answer. What we found is that screams occupy a very reserved niche of the acoustic soundscape of all the possible sounds you might entertain or generate. So it's not just that it's speech that's very loud or song that's very loud or something like that. It's actually reserved. It has a special acoustic quality, which has a weird technical definition. It's actually called roughness. And roughness is actually the rate of modulation of the sound's loudness, if you will. That makes sense, really. What makes us jump to attention is how quickly the sound goes from loud to quiet and back to loud again. If it does this once per second, then we say that the volume modulates at a rate of 1 hertz. So how rough is, say, normal human speech? And how does this compare to the rate of modulation in a scream? If you just measured or recorded our conversation right now, that turns out to be between 4 and 5 hertz cross-linguistically, by the way, whether I'm doing an analysis of Mandarin Chinese or of German or of English. Now, if you take a sound and you modulate its amplitude much, much more rapidly, like 30 to 150 hertz is what we found in our measurements, that's what gives it this quality of roughness. And the more of that roughness modulation a sound has the more screamy it sounds and the more scary you rate it, in fact. Now we know the key property of the scream itself, but how can we find out if human screams are the only sound that has this effect on us? By measuring the local activity in all the different regions of the brain using an MRI scanner, you can see that the more rough a sound is, the more an area called the amygdala, aka the emotional hub of the brain, becomes activated you can then measure the roughness of a whole host of different sounds and predict exactly which ones will have you jumping out of your seat, just like a scream would. It turns out that no other auditory signals really have this particular modulation, with one crucial exception, and that turns out to be other alarm sounds. 
So if you look at car alarms, police sirens, irritating alarm clocks, these are the kind of auditory signals that also have this roughness modulation. So it's interesting. It means that sound designers who make these kind of stimuli, by trial and error in some sense, uh, happened upon exactly this kind of sound quality. And that's because it's very salient and very attention-grabbing, so they're just super effective at getting you to be afraid, run away, scream bloody murder, or what have you. Just checking you hadn't switched off there. It's all very well and good, this new knowledge, but what exactly is the relevance of it? We can take an, any old signal, like you know, me saying some not fantastically interesting sentence to you, and I can modulate it in that way and make it sound like a scream. It would be absolutely criminal if I didn't give this a go. Let's take the everyday sound of a yawn. And see what we can do. That should do it. Hold on to your seats, everyone. Oh, wow. I don't know about you, but I am truly quaking in my boots. Still, I don't quite get what I can achieve with this, though, other than using it in the next Naked Scientist's Halloween special, of course. Now, that means, of course, you can use it to make more effectively tuned alarm signals, more specific sounds, sirens, but you can also, of course, use it for all kinds of entertainment fun. You could make scarier movies. You can optimize the stuff by, you know, correlating it with other visual information and so on. Even scarier movies? That sounds like more nights behind the sofa for me. That was David Popple from the University of New York, and his work was published in Current Biology. In humans, estimates vary, but certainly thousands and thousands of genes are regulated by small RNAs. It could be that every gene is regulated by a small RNA. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we visit the weird world of epigenetics. How does the packing around our DNA affect how genes work? And what are all those tiny RNAs doing? Plus, a new genetic link to obesity and a mythical gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. This is The Naked Scientist. I'm Kat Arney and also with me, Greer Jackson. Now it's time to move on to the main section of our programme, the Millennium Prize Problems. This is a set of seven maths questions that have been deemed so important that if you can solve them, you'll be awarded $1 million. I wouldn't mind getting my hands on that kind of prize money, but sadly, I am absolutely terrible at maths. In today's programme, Greer and I are seeing what it would take to do the math and solve one of these problems. And we'll also be finding out why the solutions could revolutionise our world. Before we get to the nitty gritty of these problems, though, we're joined by maths PhD student and naked scientist Tom Crawford. Hello. Hey, Greer. Hello. So give me a bit of background to these problems. Has there been anything like this before? Um, So, yeah, these are sort of a second reincarnation of the idea of important maths problems. So in the year 1900, there was a mathematician called Hilbert who actually came up with 23 problems that he considered to be the most important in the year 1900. And in fact, one of these is actually one of the millennium problems as well. And then the year 2000 came around. It's a big event. Lots of things happened. And, you know, maths thought, let's get involved with this. So Jump on the bandwagon. Exactly. They, They sort of sat down and decided, right, these are the biggest unsolved problems in mathematics at this time. Did they say seven? Because seven is a prime number and an interesting maths number. 
I'm not sure exactly why they chose seven, but that sounds that sounds like a good idea to me. And you you say they, these mathematicians, who are they? And I assume they're the ones fitting uh, the bill of a million dollars, right? Yes. So this is the Clay Institute. It's an institute based in America. They had money left to them and thought, um, let's use this as prize money, sort of extra motivation. But if you ask most mathematicians, I won't say all, but if you ask most mathematicians, they, they wouldn't actually try and tackle these problems for the money. It's more just for the fun of sort of doing the maths in some sense. So can you give me a quick rundown of the final seven? I'll start with the one I'm doing my PhD on is uh, the Navier-Stokes equations. This is fluid dynamics. This is a set of equations that model the flow of every fluid. So water, air, anything. Um, then we've got the mass gap hypothesis. You can think of this one as asking the question, why do things have mass? Mm, sounds interesting. So you mentioned two of them there. There's four more by my count, by my math. Um, five. Five? <laughs> oh, no. Okay. What are the other five? Um, we've got uh, the Poincaré conjecture, which will is an interesting one, as we'll find out later. We've got the Riemann hypothesis, which looks at prime numbers. Um, we have P versus NP, one of the more famous ones. Um, so this is basically looking at how computers work. And then the last two are quite abstract. So you have the, the Birch-Swinerton-Dyer conjecture. Oh, wow. Great names. And then finally, the Hodge conjecture. So the Hodge conjecture is quite an interesting one because depending on which expert in the field you ask about this problem, they will give you a different definition of what this problem is. So no one can agree what the actual problem is in the first place. Yeah, that's how complex some of these problems are. So how are we ever going to go about solving them if we can't even agree what they are in the first place? Well, I mean, some of them are a bit more approachable and there's a bit more general consensus about what this problem is. But I think the main idea of these problems, it's not necessarily getting a solution. It's understanding more. So, you know, by trying to conquer this giant mountain of a problem, you'll scale, you know, smaller peaks along the way and make new advances in in other areas of math. A million pounds sounds like an awful lot, but I suppose if you spend your entire life doing this, then actually it's not that much. No, um, sort of estimates of the amount of time it would take to solve one of these problems, it actually works out as being paid below minimum wage for the amount of time you would need to spend to solve one of these problems. Wow, we've got some very dedicated mathematicians out there. Yeah, most, most mathematicians, I, uh, I think, actually do it, do it for fun, if you can believe that. I'm just thinking about my maths class back when I was 16 and maths uh, certainly wasn't my favourite subject. But maybe I should revisit that. Yeah, sounds good. Tom Crawford, naked scientist and also maths PhD student from the University of Cambridge. And we'll be hearing from Tom later in the programme, so do stay tuned. As Tom has told us, there are seven problems, so we're going to see how many we can get through in the remainder of the show. On your marks... First on the agenda is the Riemann hypothesis. This is a problem that's gone unsolved for 150 years. So what's it all about? Well, the problem relates to the Riemann zeta function. This is a very complicated mathematical expression, but understanding it will tell us a lot more about prime numbers and how they're distributed. World-famous mathematician Marcus de Sotoy from Oxford University joins us to unpick and perhaps solve, if we have time, the Riemann hypothesis. Hi, Marcus. Hello, I wish, yes. (laughs) Maybe we've only got 25 minutes left, so maybe not. Uh, Let's start at the beginning. Who was Riemann and, I guess, what was his hypothesis? 
Uh, Riemann was one of the greatest mathematicians of the 19th century in Germany. He was at this one of the great hotbeds of mathematics, um, Göttingen University. He was a student of Carl Friedrich Gauss. Um, he was also responsible for coming up with some of the mathematics that Einstein used in order to create relativity, the invention and discovery of sort of dimensions of geometry beyond our three-dimensional universe. But um, uh, the Riemann hypothesis is his great discovery about what we think is actually at the heart of making the primes uh, tick. Interestingly, he discovered it in um, 1859, which is the same year as uh, Charles Darwin's publication of The uh, Origin of Species. And I think you can call this really the, the origin of the primes. We think that what he discovered um, is telling us all about prime numbers, but it's still something of a mystery. So, so the Riemann hypothesis, let me tell you what you've got to solve. You've got to prove that the non-trivial zeros of the Riemann zeta function, that the real part of them all have... Um, are equal to a half. Now, whoa, that, yeah, hang exactly. on. So, so um, I think that's maybe more maths than I can cope with right now. So let's start with some simple stuff about what are the prime numbers about? A prime number, probably remember from school or maybe you're still at school, um, it's a number which is indivisible. You can't divide it by anything other than itself and one. So something like 17, uh, the number I play for on my football team, that's a prime number, but 15 isn't because you can write that as three times five. Is there a pattern to how these prime numbers are distributed? We've got sort of uh, 3, 5, 7, 11, 13, and then it starts to get more spread out. Can we actually predict where they're going to be, or is this random? Uh, well, exactly. So mathematics, you know, I tend to think of it's the science of patterns. That's what this is all about. And these numbers, they're, the, they're really the atoms of mathematics, because you can build all other numbers by multiplying these primes together. But when you look at a list of them, 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, 13, and you you count higher and higher. One of the first great theorems of the ancient Greeks was that there are infinitely many of them, but then if there are infinitely many, we've got to try and find a pattern to this. You know, the chemists, they've got a periodic table which they just list all of their atoms, but for the mathematicians, these prime numbers, the challenge is there doesn't seem to be any pattern to these numbers which are the most fundamental in the whole of mathematics. Um, so that's the challenge. It's really a 2,000-year-old problem rather than a 150-year-old problem. But 150 years ago, Riemann actually understood that um, although outwardly they look very random, there's something hiding behind there called these zeros of the Riemann zeta function, which do have some pattern to them. And that's what you've got to prove, a pattern about this kind of like the DNA, which um, makes these numbers work. So how would someone go about proving this? And then what, what could the payoff be? Why, why would it help if we could actually spot this, this underlying pattern and prove this to be true? Well, if I knew the answer to your first problem, I wouldn't be here now. I'd be claiming my million dollars. So that's one of the challenges uh, is, you know, with these great unsolved problems, how on earth do you go about solving them? And Riemann actually stumbled on his uh, new way of looking at the primes almost um, by chance. And it's, it's about playing and experimenting, trying to find connections with other things things. So how are we going to do it? I don't know, else I'd be already, you know, frankly, I'd pay a million dollars to solve this one. It's so, so important. Why it will be important for people um, who, you know, perhaps, oh, what's maths got to do with me? Actually, the prime numbers are absolutely essential now in all the codes that are used on the internet um, to send things securely. So every time you've ever sent your credit card across the internet and want it to be kept secure, actually using the fact that we don't understand the primes well enough to keep that secure, the code we use, it uses prime numbers to sort of encode um, the thing so it can't be read. If we understood the Riemann hypothesis, potentially the deeper understanding we'd have of primes would give us a way, perhaps, to crack these codes.
That sounds kind of risky to me, though, if all this information has been sent using prime numbers. Yes, potentially it is. But um, at the moment, the codes are very robust. But in a sense, it is tapping into our the fact that we don't understand numbers. Here's a challenge. You know, if I give you a number like 15, what are the primes which made that number? Well, that's easy. It's three times five. But if I give you a 200 digit number, which are the numbers used on the Internet to crack any website's um, cryptography, uh, there's a public 200 digit number. You've got to find the two primes which multiply together, give that number. So if you can do that, it's kind of like a prime number spectrometer. Um, then you'll be able to crack all the um, uh, codes on the Internet. That sounds like a job for an enterprising cyber bank robber who could also win a million dollars and then potentially everyone's credit cards. Thank you very much. That's Marcus de Sotoy, Professor for the Public Understanding of Science at Oxford University. That's one problem down. Over to you, Greer, for problem number two. Well, this one is a real high flyer. It's called the Navier-Stokes equation, which, if solved, could model the flow of any fluid. That means how aeroplanes navigate the skies, how water meanders in a river and how the flow of blood courses through your veins. Understanding these equations in more detail will lead to scientific advances in all of these fields, better aircraft design, improved flood defences and even better drug delivery in the body. Fluids expert Keith Moffat took Tom Crawford down into the deepest, darkest depths of Cambridge University's maths lab. We've just gone underground and we're still outside a lab called the Goldstein Lab. It kind of reminds me of a, of a secret lair of a, either a superhero or maybe a supervillain. There are all kinds of complicated looking devices, cameras everywhere, all kinds of equipment and wires coming out of things. So these equations, the Navier-Stokes equations, they are a set of mathematical equations that model the flow of any fluid. That could be air, water, even blood in the body, perhaps? Yes, that is correct. For the vast majority of fluids, particularly air and water, the equations are based on Newton's laws, so they're very classical. They were first written down in the uh, 19th century, and they're highly mathematical in structure. So if we have these equations that model the flow of all of these different kinds of fluids, then why is this a millennium problem? It is an unsolved problem, although many people have tried. This question of whether solutions of the famous Navier-Stokes equations can or cannot become infinite. And you might say it's a problem that you might throw the computer at. We've got extremely powerful computers nowadays. But a computer can never tell you whether a solution actually is going to infinity. The computer program will always break down before the singularity is reached. When I think of singularities, I'm thinking of the Big Bang or a black hole in space. What exactly do you mean by a singularity here? Well, a singularity in general means that you have a system of equations in which one of the variables, anyone, may go to infinity. And do we have any examples with fluids that exhibit this singularity behaviour? The singularity may occur most simply through a consideration of the problem of two tornado-like vortices. If these are forced together, then they go through a process of what's called vortex reconnection. It's a very complex process because each vortex tries to wind round the other. 
and the spatial structure becomes very complex. So the question is, can it become infinitely complex? And how close are we to actually understanding this problem? How far away is a solution? 30 years. (laughs) I'll hold you to that. 30 years doesn't sound too long for a problem that's puzzled mathematicians for almost 200 years. That was Keith Moffat from the University of Cambridge. In humans, estimates vary, but certainly thousands and thousands of genes are regulated by small RNAs. It could be that every gene is regulated by a small RNA. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we visit the weird world of epigenetics. How does the packing around our DNA affect how genes work? And what are all those tiny RNAs doing? Plus, a new genetic link to obesity and a mythical gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. This is The Naked Scientist. I'm Kat Arney and also with me, Greer Jackson. This week, we've been pulling apart equations in search of a solution for the millennium maths problems. We've tackled two of the seven big hitters, but Kat has another one for us. Now, this is a puzzle that's been around since the dawn of civilization, or perhaps in my case, the dawn of shopping. If I have to pop to the shoe shop, the bank and then the grocer's, which route is the quickest? Nowadays, I just freaking Google it, but is the route we're given actually the quickest? To find the shortest route or the optimal solution, math says that I would have to consider every possible route to be sure that I've got the fastest one. Now, that's probably not too hard if I'm just visiting three or four shoe shops at once, but if we're visiting, say, a thousand, it would take computers more than 13 billion years to consider every solution. Now, this conundrum relates to the next millennium problem on our list. It's called P versus NP. And to explain it, Scott Aronson joins us from MIT. Hi, Scott. Hi, good to be here. So if you can explain to me, what is P versus NP all about? Yeah. So in one sentence, the the question asks, uh, if you can program your computer to quickly recognize the solution to a problem, then can you also quickly program your computer to quickly find a solution? Okay, so uh, you use the example of the traveling salesman or salesperson problem where, uh, you know, you're given a, a bunch of uh, places you want to visit and uh, the distance between every pair of them. And you want to know whether there's a route that will visit each place, let's say, with uh, at most two hours total travel time. Now, the key aspects of this problem are, first of all, that there is, you know, in a finite but astronomically large set of possible solutions. Okay, so in principle, you could just check all the solutions one by one. But uh, uh, in reality, if there, as you said, like a a thousand places to to visit, there's, you know, uh, uh, the number of possibilities is like a thousand times 999 times 998 and so forth, which is way more than the number of atoms in the visible universe. Okay, so even with the fastest supercomputers today, you just couldn't try all of them. Okay, and the question is, are there checkable problems that require uh, an exponential amount of time to actually find the solution? Uh, uh, so that would be P not equal to NP. Or uh, are they all solvable by some clever shortcut where you could do it using only a reasonable amount of time? So one way I've heard this described is it's basically like uh, asking a riddle. You know, if you hear the answer, you go, oh, yeah, that's definitely the right answer. I, I can tell you that. Whereas you might have to puzzle through a whole load of different answers. And what would be the benefits of being able to to figure this out? Because it seems like quite an interesting puzzle, but what could be the benefits of it? 
Well, the, the, the implications are, are immense, actually. I mean, this, this problem actually has, I think, the most direct practical uh, implications of any of these uh, clay problems. So first of all, it would mean that all of the cryptography that we currently use uh, on the internet could be broken. Okay, you know, the Riemann hypothesis, as uh, Dr. Dusatoy was saying, is sort of indirectly connected to cryptography. Okay, if P were equal to NP, that would directly imply that, you know, all of the cryptography that we use to protect our credit card numbers uh, could be broken. Okay, uh, because all of it, you know, is based on sort of NP problems, if you like. This would basically say, yep, all of these can be solved. We can figure this one out. That's right. That's exactly right. Now, that doesn't mean that if P is not equal to NP, that all of our cryptography is secure. But, you know, P not equal to NP is sort of the least that you need to have uh, secure uh, cryptography on the Internet. Okay. now, in addition to that, you know, P equals NP uh, would be a huge boon for artificial intelligence. Uh, If you have, let's say, a neural network, you could just sort of very, very quickly find the the best setting, you know, that, that, that causes the neural net to do the best at recognizing faces. Or, or whatever it's supposed to do. And then, you know, here's, here's sort of a, a something to ponder. Uh, if P equals NP, you know, that would also help in solving math problems like the clay problems themselves. You know, I like to argue that P versus NP is actually the most important of all these problems. And the argument is simply, well, if, if you prove that P equals NP, that would not only solve this one problem, it would mean that you could program your computer to solve all of the others for you. Where do you think the solution for this problem might come from? Are there any hints, any teasers so far? So there are hints. Uh, So I think we know uh, a lot more about this problem than we do when it was first formulated uh, around the middle of the 20th century. Uh, We know a lot about what doesn't work. You know, I should say that almost all of us in this field conjecture that P is not equal to NP. Hopefully you'll find an answer soon. That's Scott Aronson from MIT. We just about have time for one more problem, and it's perhaps the most exciting because it's the only one to have been solved. Grigory Perelman is a quiet, unassuming mathematician from Russia who took the world of maths by storm in 2010 when he not only solved the Poincaré problem, but then refused the $1 million reward. Tom Crawford went along to the Millennium Bridge in London to meet mathematician Katie Steckles to shed some light on Perelman's story and to find out why the Millennium Bridge was in fact its own Millennium Maths problem. Turns out when this first opened, you might remember that there was some issues with it being wobbly. They'd forgotten to take into account something called resonance, resonant frequencies, and each object has its own resonant frequency. Uh, And it just happened that the frequency that the bridge liked to resonate at best uh, was about the same as the frequency of people walking. So to close the bridge, uh, and they put in some kind of dampening supports to stop it from doing that. But it's still a little bit wobbly, but I think most suspension bridges are anyway, so it's fine. It's quite windy today, but I'm feeling quite safe underfoot. And which of the Millennium problems are we looking at today? The Poincaré conjecture, which is uh, the first of the Millennium Prize problems to actually get solved. And I'm especially excited because it's in the area of maths that I studied, uh, which is topology. The main thing I remember about the very minimal topology I've done is that a donut and a teacup are the same thing mathematically. That's true. Uh, So there's basically a concept in topology uh, where you can consider things to be equivalent if you can get from one to the other by doing kind of a smooth change. So if you had something made out of blue tack or something you can kind of squidge around, if you can take one and deform it into the other one, but in a kind of very gradual way, 
you will consider those two things to be equivalent. And you can take a, a donut made out of plasticine and then squidge it around into a cup made out of plasticine. Uh, and that's why there is this joke about, you call a topologist, someone who can't tell the difference between his donut and his cup of tea. Uh, and it's interesting how the topology view of things interacts with the real world view sometimes things that you wouldn't expect to be able to do you can do so I can be wearing a waistcoat and take the waistcoat off turn it inside out and put it back on the other way around while my hands are handcuffed together so Katie's got a waistcoat on and now she's just attaching the handcuffs voluntarily I'd like to add right handcuffs are on waistcoats on let's see what you can do And it is, it's beautiful. It's, it's on inside out. It looks great as well. It's covered in stars. <laughs> we've, got, we've got someone clapping as they walk past. They're so impressed. What Katie's handcuff waistcoat trick has shown us is how simplifying shapes down to their basic structure allows us to see them in a different light and perhaps do new things with them that we previously would have thought impossible. In some sense, this is what the Poincaré conjecture is all about. The conjecture states that any shape satisfying a set of three conditions can be deformed into a sphere. I know this sounds a little abstract, but just bear with me. Any shape that is smooth, finite and without any holes can be deformed into a sphere. For example, math says I can squash a banana into an orange. This not only holds true in three dimensions, but in higher dimensions as well. Like there are other dimensions that we can't see, such as time, in maths there are in fact an infinite number of dimensions. The Poincaré conjecture had been shown to be true in every dimension except the fourth. And proving this was the millennium problem. I say was... Because as Katie mentioned earlier, it has now been solved by a man called Grigory Perelman. Perelman was uh, from Russia. He was a fantastic mathematician. And he started working on this particular problem in about 1995. So before it even became a Millennium Prize problem. And it was in 2002, he basically put up what he'd done on the internet. Perelman didn't even publish it. He didn't even submit it to a journal. He just put it on the internet. Uh, And it was kind of a bit out of nowhere. So it was kind of a really exciting time um, and it became a really, really big story. So I guess the big question is, what did he do with his prize money? Well, that's the interesting thing because uh, Perelman didn't actually want a million dollars. And it's, it's one of those things that the, the kind of the official line is that he didn't want the publicity, he didn't want a massive change in his lifestyle, uh, but it turns out the best way to get loads of media attention is to refuse a million-dollar prize, so uh, that kind of backfired for him. I think, I mean, it's, it's one of those weird stories because he's so reluctant to do any press about it, talk to people, uh, but he is such a giant of mathematics, and I'm really glad he's proved it because that means topology has almost won the, the Millennium Prize race. I guess we got the first one in. The first one to be solved, but hopefully not the last. Tom Crawford there speaking with Katie Steckles on the Millennium Bridge. Now, sadly, we're nearly out of time for this week's show. Well, I reckon four out of seven problems isn't bad. That's how many left? Oh, no, don't remind me. (laughs) Uh, Two, no, three. Uh, Many thanks to all our studio guests this week. That's James Rudd, Tom Crawford, Marcus de Sotoy, Scott Aronson and Peter Cowley. And finally, it's time for Question of the Week. Amy Goodfellow has been lending an ear to Jerry's question. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. 
What acreage of a wheat field do you need to make a large loaf of wholemeal bread? Let's say I'm on a beautiful country farm with Andrew Whitley, co-founder of the UK's Real Bread campaign. The sun is shining, not a cloud in sight, and there is wheat as far as the eye can see. Andrew, where do we even begin with this question? A large wholemeal loaf baked in a tin weighs 800 grams. It takes about 550 grams of flour, plus water, salt and yeast, to make the dough for a loaf like this. Let's assume it's real bread, without any additives to puff it up or pad it out. Mmm, yummy. But what's the difference between white and wholemeal flour? Does this affect the amount of wheat we need? Wholemeal flour is what you get when you grind up whole grains of wheat and take nothing out. To make white flour, you lose about 25% of the original grain, mostly the nutrient-rich bran layer and the vital wheat germ. So we need about 550 grams of wheat for our loaf. How much land it takes to grow this depends on the farmer's production method. I suppose production methods broadly boil down to organic and non-organic farming? I've heard it takes eight tonnes of natural gas to make just one tonne of fertiliser. But would that decrease the amount of land we would need to make a certain amount of wheat? With heavy applications of artificial nitrogen, plus spraying with fungicides and pesticides, yields of 10 tonnes of wheat per hectare are common. So basically, a square metre could produce one kilo of wheat. But if you don't want residues of toxic chemicals in your bread you may prefer to rely on a careful farmer and a fertile soil, in which case a yield of five to six tonnes of clean and nutritious wheat per hectare is possible, or about 550 grams per square metre. The non-organic stuff has a pretty high production margin then. It takes somewhere between a third and a half more field to make organic bread. How much land would I need to make one sumptuous wholemeal loaf then, Andrew? An area of about one-half to one metre squared is what it takes to grow a wholemeal loaf. To me, that seems like quite a lot for just one loaf. There you go, Jerry. I hope that answers your question. Next time, we'll be climbing aboard the Starship Enterprise to boldly go where no one has gone before to answer Patrick's question. What are wormholes and how are they created in the universe? Fancy taking a stab at answering Patrick's question, or perhaps you have a question of your own? Do get in touch. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on the forum. That's nakedscientist.com slash forum. That's it for this week. Big thanks to Tom Crawford for production and persuading us to do a show on maths. First one we've ever done, I believe. Do join us next week when we'll be taking on your science questions. So if you want to know why your eyes water when you yawn or why healing wounds itch, do tune in. And of course, we need your questions. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook or tweet them to at Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Until next time, goodbye. 